0: the vast majority of people are just looking for a different story, you know? And, like, see that there might be an opportunity for one. So for this country to still be some kind of beacon of hope to people, like, to me, is promise instead of demise. The fact that some people have turned that narrative into demise instead, like, people are looking to this country to, like, recreate their future Mm -hmm. and, like, hope to build something of their future, you know? So for that story to, like, be one to, like, be turned into like one of fear and like no like they're gonna be our end they're gonna be what destroys this country is crazy to me because i'm like no like they're the ones that have created like my parents created jobs for so many people you know
1: something that really interests me is the way that everyone has a different way of telling their own story on on the podcast i've had some guests who really just skim through most of their life and want to discuss the present Some people naturally end up talking about specific, formative experiences, you know, like high school or whatever. Um, But this this interview is the first one I've ever done where my guest wanted to spend a lot of time talking about their parents' lives and their own childhood. (laughs) Like, it's kind of uncanny how good Susie Lee is at remembering what it was like to be a kid. The funny thing is, seriously, how little time we spent talking about her adult life. So I guess I should tell you right now who Susie is. Susie is a calligrapher, an artist, a designer. She works full-time for herself, which is inspiring, and she's an all-around amazing and really interesting person right before we recorded she was telling me you know for instance about a recent trip to mexico city she got to visit frida kahlo's house what can i say she has a dope life anyway i'll let her get to it in her own words Uh, i'm jordan eckroth and this is the reindeer club podcast Gentlemen, introducing to the reindeer club podcast
0: Susie Lee. Awesome. That was exactly how I wanted to be introduced.
1: Thank you. Along with me apologizing for smelling because I just worked out. Now I we smell check both no, of the boxes. No,
0: I don't I don't smell it. Susie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much.
1: How are we doing so far? The intro is uh
0: It's great. I think it's, like, good for people to, like, realize that just because they can't smell you or can't smell this room, (laughs) that smell doesn't exist. That, like, we're here in a real place. Yeah, and it smells. And we're two real people. It doesn't smell that that much. It's, like, normal. Yeah, but it does a little bit. No, like, in, like, the way that, like, a person's room smells, you know? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Like, there's a person that lives here. Yeah. Like, you go into Bear's Den, you smell a bear. That kind of thing. (sighs)
1: Oh. Yeah. Is that the first, like, was the... The smell, <laughs> the first association is there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: I'll yeah. Hey, um, Susie, I have been really excited to have this conversation with you, do this podcast because. You are honestly not someone that I, like, have known super well. Like, we sort of run in similar circles. We know a lot of the same people. We bump into each other at parties. Mm -hmm. We have, like, conversations. But we haven't had, you know, that many, like, deep conversations. Yeah. Don't really, like, know each other that well. Yeah. But every time I talk to you, like, I leave feeling like, damn, this woman is so cool.
2: Mm. Like,
1: she's into some really cool stuff. She's about some really cool things, mm. and not to say that, you know, like, uh, like cool, I should find more than one word to describe you, because now it's just sounding kind of, like, vapid and <laughs> surface level, but, like, more than that. I, yeah, I wanted to just get you in here, and we were even just talking for a while before, like, hitting record, and, yeah, my suspicions are confirmed. You have got some, like, very interesting things going on in your life, mm-hmm. and you've got a, a very interesting story, mm-hmm. and are you, are you ready to kind of tell us yeah. some of your story?
0: I mean, I would say, for me, like, my favorite part of my story, which you talked about, is... Is kind of like the stuff that came before me, and yeah. Um, well, where should we start then? I think we start with the people that made me.
1: Okay, in the summer of nineteen. In the summer of
0: no, I think it was. It must have been like the fall. I don't. I don't know. At some point, um, but my my parents are from South Korea. They both grew up there. They're both the oldest, the eldest of their large families. So my mom comes oh, wow. from like a pretty big family, and my dad comes from a really big one as well they're both the eldest, which means a lot in Asian cultures. Yeah, It carries a lot of responsibility and weight. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad came from a certain family background that kind of had like a lot of responsibility that came with it, you know? So in Korean culture, if you come from, if you're like the eldest of the eldest of the eldest, basically of that familial line, mm-hmm. there's a lot of of responsibility that comes with that. It's, like, comes with land that you're supposed to maintain and comes with, like, and on that land, like, your ancestors are are buried. Like, it's, like, an intense thing. It's yeah. not just kind of, like, you have a book with some, like, with a family tree, you know, it's, like, yeah. really deep. And that is a part of it. Like, you kind of are in charge of maintaining the history of your familial line, that kind of stuff. But my dad was kind of, like, this... He was kind of, like, the first rebel of that for his family. And um, he was a romantic, born into a family that didn't necessarily encourage that. Um, Mm. My grandfather was very strict and had expectations of my dad to basically fulfill everything, like, his role. Everything my grandpa was doing, he expected to pass that on to my dad. What
1: was your grandfather's, like, profession?
0: So he was, like, in politics, but he also, like... Had a lot of land in the in the in the town that they grew up in. It it was like a small town, but it was like a it was a it was like a farmland town, and so
1: so he's like a politician landowner. Of course, he's like expecting your dad to follow in his footsteps.
0: And my dad instead was like. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a poet. And my dad my grandfather was like no 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 like this is all spelled out for you. Like it was spelled out for you before you were born. Okay, you this know? is
1: like so intense when like it's wanting really to be a doctor is not good enough. No, it's not good
0: enough. <laughs> and it was like too romantic for my grandfather's standards cuz he was like no there's one answer. It's that you're studying law and you're being a politician and you're like taking over every position in society that I held. You know, like mm. that's the whole point of me having an eldest son when you were born it was like this is the guy you know so for my dad to like dream outside of that which he always did like he was you know I hear stories from my aunt I hear stories from my aunt all the time about how my dad would like run away and like go sit under this bridge that like this bridge over over a river Mm -hmm. and he'd like go like my, my aunt would find him. My grandfather would be upset and be like, where's your brother? And my aunt would go look for him and find him always under this bridge just, like, napping and dreaming. Like, and my aunt would just sit next to him and be like, what are you doing? You know, like, you're going to get in trouble again. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a whooping again. And my dad was like, I'm dreaming of, like, what it's going to be like when I'm a poet and when I live in a, in a faraway country. And, wow. like, he always had these really exotic dreams for, like my dad passed away when I was 18. So that's another whole part of my story. But the, the like position in society he was born into, you know, like Mm -hmm. he wasn't supposed to dream any of those things and he did. And so ultimately that leads to him getting married to my mom. And then they moved to America, which for my grandfather at the time was basically like a cutting of ties. My grandfather was like cut out of the family line it was one of those things and so when my grandfather or my my dad moved to america like he his dad was basically like you don't you're not a part of our family anymore it was one of those things and thank goodness like eventually my grandfather came around and they were able to restore that relationship and Mm -hmm. my dad was able to communicate like why it was so important for him to move to america but Um, my parents moved to America in a time in, like, the height of the American dream. They moved here in the 80s, like, when amnesty was a thing, and um, they became citizens, and my dad's goal was to move all of his siblings, so they moved here, like, with, you know, they left, it's crazy for me, because I've lived abroad, I lived in Scotland, and that was, like, a crazy leap for me, and I was, like, born in America with every, you know, with
1: speaking English. Yeah,
0: speaking English with every tool, you know, like, and I, and I lived in Scotland for one year for graduate school. And I think about my parents being, I think my mom was like 20, um, actually she was probably like 32 at the time. Mm. I'm 31. So my mom was a year older than me holding a five-year-old's hand, my brother's hand, and like moved to America with my dad, speaking zero English. Like my mom watched Sesame Street and I Love Lucy for like two months before they moved to try to... That was her (laughs) English education. And this was a time when Korea was not the country it is now. Like, it was still a really poor country, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: So she, like... They moved here without their family. They were the first of their families to move away from Korea.
1: Did they have, like, any connections out
0: here? They had no connections out here. So they showed up at L.A., in L.A., into Koreatown and just, you know... Koreatown, like, now is, like, hipsterville. Yeah. But it's... It, up until a few years and like especially back then it was basically like a little colony like a little Korean colony
1: actually like yeah the like
0: name. yeah and every i mean you could get around you could live a normal existence day to day just speaking Korean and never learning English mm-hmm. in Koreatown at that time
2: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah um but my mom tells me stories about like when they first moved my brother remembers this like they would go to McDonald's and They would, my mom would go with a $20 bill each time because she didn't want to like have to count things out or like not have enough, you know, she would go with a a crisp $20 bill each time and she would say, she would literally just motion to number twos and like, that's how she would order for my brother and her and that was like, you know, the luxury was like going to McDonald's at the time, you yeah, know. Yeah. And the exotic hamburger, you know. Um Ooh. What I don't was know.
1: what was your mom's family like?
0: My mom's family was <sighs> I love my mom's family. They're really really sweet kind people, but my mom was the first of she's the eldest, but she's a girl, so that comes with its own set of issues in in Korea.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um My mom's family, she comes from a family of five sisters and um, one brother. So there were four girls, and in Korea it was like, you're going to keep trying until you get that boy. There were four girls, one boy, and they tried again, and they got a girl again, so they stopped. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so they had six kids, and my mom was the oldest of those girls. And when my mom was um, in seventh grade, I think, she dropped out of middle school to put her siblings through school because my, my grandmother and my grandfather, I mean, my mom was born the year the Korean War started. So it was like a crazy time and my grandmother and grandfather were um, struggling to make ends meet. And so my mom quit school and she's like so stinking smart. It's so annoying because she literally dropped out in seventh grade and if you ask her, like, who her favorite author is, she'll say Dostoevsky, and you're like, what? Wow. You dropped out of school in seventh grade. Like, yeah. what in the world? But, um, yeah, she comes from a family of really kind people that sacrifice for each other. Mm. So I learned from a really young age, sacrifice for my mom, because I watched her do that over and over and over again for our family. And every, you know, every mom does that, you know, but, um, Yeah, but just seeing, like, how she did it for not only us, but also, like, her siblings. Mm -hmm. Even though she was grown up and had her own family, like, my mom and my dad put everything on the line to get any of their siblings that wanted to move to the U.S., like, to get them here. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, like, help them, like, establish their first businesses and, like, get on their feet, you know? So, I learned from a really young age just like that love is sacrifice and like watch my mom do that to such an extreme degree and then like Mm -hmm. when I got older you know after I graduated college she told me that she dropped out in seventh grade and I was like but Dostoevsky's your favorite author like war and peace is your favorite like what none of this makes sense you know but yeah just like good radical people who believed in the American dream and like wanted it's crazy because I grew up kind of you know, you hear Asian kids talk about, like, oh, I grew up with, like, you know, these expectations and yada yada, but, like, there's so much honor in that, too. Like, I think it's so easy to make light of the, like, hard part of that, you know, of being, like, my parents made me, like, you know, I joke about it, too, but it's, like, my parents made me take piano lessons and cello lessons, and, like, I did math tutoring, and, like, did art classes, and took tennis lessons, and totally that's how it was for me growing up as an Asian kid, but, like, the the truth is that my parents moved here, like, with little to nothing, Mm -hmm. and the fact that they, like, sacrificed constantly for me to, like, have that kind of education and that kind of experience as a child, like, is insane, you know, and, like, that's the foundation, and so, I don't know, it's really wild to me when, I guess, you know, moving into the political discussion, like when people talk badly about immigrants and my example of immigrants are my mom and dad. And I see that they were the least selfish people Mm -hmm. and their biggest goal was not like just, they were, I mean, they were themselves to the bone, you know, they weren't in some like high and mighty jobs. They were literally like like, opened a restaurant and work, would work, like, would go in at, like, 9 a.m. and would come home at, like, 10 Mm p.m., you know, 11 p.m., and, like, that was their work day, you know, it wasn't like they were in some, like, ivory tower, that was their job, you know, they worked with their hands on their feet, and I got, like, you know, cello lessons, piano lessons, tutoring, SAT tutoring, like, all of that, because of their sacrifice not because they had money to spare you know
2: yeah
0: and their goal wasn't like we want you to be rich they were like we moved to this country and we got a lot of opportunity that we couldn't have hadn't had in our country and this was something that they told me from a young age you know they were like we moved to this country we couldn't have had to ever have had the opportunity that we had that we've had here in our own country hmm. so like we need to make you the best people you can be to give back to this country hmm. that was a story that i was told from a young age you know so for like immigrants to be painted as villains is just like the craziest thing to me because yeah. like those are my examples and like I couldn't be less convinced that immigrants are bad people. You know, I'm like it's it's impossible. Like I've I've seen them be heroes yeah. from day 1. So mm-hmm.
1: well, there's I if, I mean, you bring up the subject and which is something that's kind of an of interest to mm-hmm. me too. And I feel like what you hear a lot of times from people who are immigrants who have come here, Mm -hmm. you know, like, legally, through proper channels, not as refugees, Mm -hmm. etc. But something that I've heard people bring up is like, you know, like, yes, I or my family or these people that I know that went through the proper channels and it was very difficult. And now there's so many people who are just trying to, like, cheat that Mm -hmm. and are you know, like not necessarily, they just want it to be easier. I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm.
0: I think for the people in our position to say they just want it to be easier is a crazy thing because Mm. really for the vast majority of, I mean, uh, we'll even get into the refugee part, but even just in the immigrant part, like I grew up in El Paso right next to the border of Juarez which is the gnarliest mm-hmm. I can't I can't in like a recorded thing say Juarez I have to say Juarez because I'm from El Paso <laughs> I'll get ridiculed by all my hometown friends but um I grew up by the border you know with friends who lived in lived in Juarez and like came to school with us and there you know there's obviously privilege everywhere you know yeah. but in El Paso, anyone who's driven through El Paso will tell you, you every day are faced with the reality of um, extremes. Like the mm. extreme of privilege and the extreme of poverty. So in El Paso, you've got I-10. You know, it's in LA. It goes all the way through El Paso. And it's like our main highway. Mm. And there's a good chunk of that where you're looking on, on one side And you see El Paso. And you look up and you see hills. And you see mansions built on those, well, mountains. And you see mansions built on those mountains. Mm -hmm. And then you look on the other side and you see slums. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You see the extreme of poverty. You see a tiny river. And then you see it separating the two. And you see slums. Just the most, yeah, the most extreme of poverty. And along with that, violence.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And... I mean, the stories that I grew up hearing, even among the privileged, you know, I had friends who, it was very clear in, I grew up, I mean, growing up in El Paso, it's very clear that some of your friends' parents are involved in in the drug trade. It's a part of living in a town like that. Um, And even then, I had a friend who in middle school, her, she like disappeared for two weeks. I think it was longer than that, maybe three weeks, she didn't come to school. And the rumor going around was that her, there was, like, this news story about this drug lord, this, like, drug feud that was happening, and one of one side, like, um, kidnapped the other, like, drug lord's brother, or Mm brother-in-law, and, um, sent him in the mail a finger. And then there was this rumor going around that this friend, my friend, who disappeared for a while, like, it was her dad and it she was she was the one who opened the mail and mm-hmm. opened a package that had her uncle's finger in it with his wedding band and like things like that were stories that were always told and you never knew what was true and what wasn't but like the fact that a 13 that that could have happened to a 13 year old and that they also had to keep it a secret You know that that was that 13 year old's reality Mm
2: -hmm.
0: like it's just crazy to me because that's some kids reality and the fact that we would not give anyone a chance like yes crime is everywhere you know i totally understand like i understand the threat but then there are people who are legitimately just looking for a chance you know like there are people that are legitimately just want a different story and like my dad is that example to me you know like Because that is my legacy like I can't forget that that's just the reality and like it would be a betrayal to like my own story Mm -hmm. to discredit like that the vast majority of people are just looking for a different story, you know, and like see that there might be an opportunity for one. So for this country to still be some kind of beacon of hope to people like to me is promise instead of demise the fact that some people have turned that narrative into demise instead like people are looking to this country to like recreate their future Mm -hmm. and like hope to build something of their future you know so for that story to like be one to like be turned into like one of fear and like no like they're gonna be our end they're gonna be what destroys this country is crazy to me because i'm like no, like they're the ones that have created, like my parents created jobs for so many people, you know, yeah. I just, yeah, I, I don't get that. And then when it comes to refugees, like I moved to San Diego to work with refugees because that story is fascinating to me. But like, I just, I come from a Christian background and it's so, so ironic to me. It's insane to me. Like it happens in the Bible and it happened. It's happening now. Like, just that people are totally turning a blind eye to the very gospel that they preach. That, like, Jesus, like, that Mary and Joseph literally came to Bethlehem as what? Bas- you know, like, were, like and had to have Jesus in, like, what? Like, basically like a barnyard, mm-hmm. you know? And that the same people who preach that gospel, like, would, would like, try to create an environment of fear about refugees, about people that are unlike us, you know, it's like the story of otherness, the story of unlikeness has always been the story. Like, that's always been like what makes this country to me so great. Mm -hmm. It's like the very foundation of our country, you know, is that people who like, were like this life is not, is not enough. Like, we want, we want a different dream where like, we can dream freely. That's the beginning of our, of our story and obviously there are some dark parts of that where a lot of injustices were done to the people that already lived here you know but like what this country was built on were people like dreaming dreams and to say that my dream because I was born here is like worth more than someone else's dream is like is crazy I just don't I can't get behind that can I
1: ask you you sort of referenced the whole like stereotypical asian kid thing yeah we can
0: totally go there because i grew up in a like the weirdest town to grow up as an asian
1: oh really i
0: mean i grew up in Paso. yeah okay so talk because i had a question
1: but talk about that then a little bit well no
0: it's just weird because like i mean from a very young age
1: like did you know it was the weirdest town to grow up in at the time always okay
0: like 100 percent of the time always i knew it was the weirdest thing like you know when you walk into a room and you don't look like everyone else yeah. from a very young age, and there were so many layers of that for me. So I was born with a cleflet. and so as a as a kid, I was like going to the doctor all the time, getting reconstructive surgeries from like a really young age. Like people talk about plastic surgery, and I was like getting reconstructive surgery from a young age. You know, so already like there's like a walking into a room as a young kid wondering if people are looking at you weird, hmm. but On top of that, I was the only, like, Asian kid. So, I didn't even have time to, like, worry about the cleft palate part. I was, like, there was already the whole Asian part. I mean, there were so many layers to this where I was just, like, other than, you know? Yeah. But, like, from a really young age, my parents, my mom specifically, really instilled in me that, like, I was it was special to be set apart. It was special to look different. It was special to be different and that it was a good thing, you know, Um, that I should like find the like, the like light in that, you Mm -hmm. know? And um, yeah, she instilled that in me from a very young age. Like I've had this scar under my nose from like having a cleft lip my whole life. And as a young kid, I remember this moment I was like looking in the mirror and having a self-conscious moment being like I wish I wasn't me I wish I didn't look like me you know and it wasn't like considering how self-conscious like you are already are as a kid like it wasn't it could have been way worse you know but my mom was always so present in those moments and I remember in that specific instance she walked up behind me saw me knew what was happening in my head and she like placed her thumb on my scar And she said, that feels like God's fingerprint. And she was like, you're set apart. Like, it wasn't enough for him to just make you look different in this environment. Like, he wanted to put a mark on you to make you different, you know? And, like, that's, like, coming from a Christian perspective. But, like, even aside from that, like, I think any way you put it, like, to appreciate difference, to, like, celebrate difference is a very beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And... Um my mom taught me to do that at a really young age and specifically because of my circumstances, you know. Yeah. But aside from that, like then growing up in a predominantly Hispanic community was just interesting, you know? Yeah. Like I had a Mexican nanny and um so I spoke Spanish really fluently at a young age. I don't I've lost a lot of it, but I still speak some of it now and um but then like when I was 15 all my friends had quinceañeras, and my mom was like, do you want a quinceañera? And I was like, no, mom, that's (gasps) definitely, like, just take on someone's culture, you know? But, like, it's funny, because I see, yeah, sweet mom, just didn't want me to feel left out. But, like, I see, like, Khalid, everyone's into Khalid right now, pop big, like, you know, musician. He's from my hometown, and he's, like, this 19, I think, I think he's 19, like, 19-year-old kid who, like, is a black kid growing up in El Paso, and that's not very common. Mm. I mean, the only black kids in that town, for the most part, have military affiliation, and that's exactly the case with Khalid. Mm. And it's crazy, because in all of his stories, like, or in all of his songs, like, he'll, like, so many of his songs, he shouts out El Paso, and people are, like, no one knows. He'll, like, say 915, and no one knows what 915 is, you know? (laughs) But he's so proud of this heritage that isn't even his own but I think the craziest thing about it is like I experienced this too is like for for there to be any culture to grow up as a minority in
2: Mm -hmm.
0: a billion times over I would like I'm so glad it was the Mexican culture that I grew up in because it's like it's the most welcoming culture like the fact that I was Asian like I mean we joke I joke all the time because like I grew up Every, with everyone calling me Chinita and I told them like I'm not Chinese like constantly I was like I'm not Chinese but they called me Chinita and it just turned into a term of endearment you know because they're like eh, I mean like it's good enough you're you're you know but it was never like in this like in this like weird like vengeful like in this like hateful way you know mm-hmm. it was in a very like endearing way where even like them calling me the wrong the wrong ethnicity was like fine because you could tell there was just like affection behind it you know Mm -hmm. it's the most welcoming yeah it's just such a welcoming culture Mm -hmm. um so so yeah it was it was definitely weird growing up in that environment
1: yeah well okay so the question i wanted to ask though yeah what's the question was so about being the stereotypical age so like the stereotypical thing yeah like you know like parents being really hard on you yeah totally uh okay right now you talking about your childhood and you know you're you're saying like the way your parents raised you Mm -hmm. is like what made you the person you are today and you can't take any credit for you know the good things you're doing you feel like Mm -hmm. it was just almost like handed to you I feel like Uh, I could be
0: doing a better job, if anything, you know, and that might be the Asian kid in me just, like, living, like, (laughs) totally, like, you know, coming out, but I'm always, like, I could be doing so much better. Uh,
1: What I was, uh, what I'm curious about is, like, when you were growing up, were you, like, cognizant of this, like, as an advantage, or did you, like, want to, did you, like, rebel against it? What kind of a kid were you?
0: Mm. So I have this very vivid memory of being in fourth grade and getting my first
2: C. Oh, I had to whisper. no. I had to whisper it
0: because uh. it's still so... Yeah, I got a C. Oh, seriously. And I remember, like, I got it on my progress report. It wasn't even my report card yet. I, like, fixed it. It was a B by the time it came to the report card. But I had a C on my progress report, and I was just, like, sitting on my bed in the morning because, you know, you had to get your progress report signed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm, like... I, it had already been like three days and it was the last morning. Like I was going to like, they were going to call my parents if I didn't get it signed that morning, you know? And I'm sitting on my bed before, before I go to school and I'm just like sitting there th- looking at the C, looking at this progress report, thinking like, this is it. Like, I'm not going to make it. Like I'm going to fail in life. It says it right here. Like it <laughs> says it on this piece of paper that I'm going to fail in life. I remember thinking that in like, what grade was I in? No, I was in, yeah, I was in fourth, yeah, I was in fourth grade. Fourth grade. I was like, I'm going to fail in life, and this progress report says it. Little did I know that, like, no one cares what you get on your fourth grade progress report. But as a fourth grader, I was like, this is it. Like, it's already, it's in the, it's in the books, it's spelled out, like, I'm done, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: How are my parents just, like, you know, like, my parents have sacrificed so much. Like, I was, I wanted to make them proud, and this is it. Mm. So, like there was always an immense amount of pressure. Yeah. But it was never like my parents were so it was it was um paired with so much love and affection that it never felt um I always knew that at the end of the day my parents were always going to accept me. Mhm. It was more fueled by a fear of disappointing them or making them like making all their sacrifice not worth it. Mhm you know, Yeah. then it was like, they're going to beat me when I get home. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't this like intense oppressive thing. It was this like, I have been given the honor of being my parents' kid, Mm -hmm. like who love me so much and have sacrificed so much for me. Like I have to live up to that. Yeah. Which I mean, yes, can be, can be a lot of pressure, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a good kind of pressure. You know, like, I think, I mean, the cello is, like, my best friend now. And, like, I wouldn't have come to know that friend without my parents pushing me. You know, mm-hmm. like, things like that where, like, I would now, like, the cello is so a part of my identity. Or, like, you know, like, different things for my childhood. Like, I have these, like, intensely, like, intimate meditative moments when I play the piano. And, like, I wouldn't have had that if my parents didn't force me to practice every day, you know, like, Mm. things where I see so much benefit in it now, Mm -hmm. but in the moment, I was like, this is crushing, I can't be good enough, you know, like, you you know, there's always that, but, but I think it all, like, I'm really, really, really grateful for it in the end, Mm -hmm. yeah, because... It would have been way easier if my mom always said, like, this is not for me. This is for you. You know, like, always told yeah. me that. And I think every parent does. But, like. Right.
1: Did like, you ever become, like, a rebellious teenager? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. But it did. was, like, totally in secret. Oh. It was totally in secret. And I was, like, like leading our, like, church youth group while I was, like, partying and, like, going out to, me- oh. like, partying in Mexico. Oh. And, like, like, going clubbing in Mexico right after youth group. You know, like, it was, yeah, like, growing up in El Paso was weird like that, where, like... It sounds exciting. It was exciting, but it was also, like, looking back on it now, like, I'm like, that was really insane, you know? But it's so a part of who I am and, like, the things that I love and, like, the cultures that make me.
1: The whole, like, leaving youth and then going and clubbing. Is that what you're Yeah, to?
0: honestly, yeah. Like knowing that the world is not black and white, knowing that the world is full of color and that if you limit yourself to one story, like, there's so many there's so many more stories in this world, you know? And I mm-hmm. think there are a lot of people who are so consumed with one story and, like, just knowing that one story, just knowing one truth mm-hmm. and not opening themselves up to, like, other people's stories, other people's truths. It doesn't mean that that has to be your own truth, but like accepting someone else's truth is like such a beautiful and freeing thing because it brings dimension and more color to your own story. You know, like for me, my childhood growing up in El Paso was like a constant education in that of like, you're not Mexican, but like all the people around you are. And like, the sooner you like open your eyes to that the beauty in that like the more beautiful your own life becomes you know and that applies to religion and that applies to culture that applies to like life experience it applies to all these different things it's like like your own story is only one and and like yeah like so much of to me about like understanding the world and like just not even just understanding the world because that sounds like just teachy but like appreciating and, like, being alive, like, fully alive in the world is to, like, know that there's so much more outside of just you. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's conversations and in in lines and it's, like, you know, it's, like, asking someone, like, how they're legitimately doing outside of just the business that, that, that you have with them, you know? Like, yeah, wow. asking your mailman, like, what the most exciting thing that happened in the last week is or, like, mm-hmm the plumber that comes to fix your toilet, like, you know, like, having a conversation with them and understanding where they come from, like, everything is an opportunity to, like, understand someone else's experience and story that I grew up in, like, was constant evidence of that, you know, so.
1: So talking about stories, then, um, a lot of what you've said so far, just the whole notion of, like, your parents had such a strong vision for like the type of life they wanted to provide mm-hmm. for you and you feel in some ways like you really are just living out what they mm-hmm. created yeah and chose mm-hmm. and how but not much in,
0: not not yeah how so, much
1: autonomy do you feel like you have
0: yeah totally so when I say that i more mean that like um i more mean that there was, like, this bravery that came with my parents' choice to come to this country and to, like, leave everything that they knew to be here. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that they have this, like... My parents were never... The last thing my parents ever thought I'd do or wanted me to do... Like, my parents didn't know what calligraphy was mm-hmm. or being a calligrapher is, you know? Like, I... Even now, like, constantly, it's it's amazing how well my mom's handled it. But, like, going full time into nonprofit work and then calligraphy work like for a Korean mother like reporting home to relatives in Korea it's like a very confusing thing to have to explain like she works for a company that doesn't make money and helps like coordinate surgery i mean like just like all of my career history is very very challenging to explain to like mm. our relatives in korea you know but my mom like my parents have always been like Do what you love, you know? Like, we're going to give you all the tools, but at the end of the day, like, do whatever is, like, the biggest contribution to society. Like, do what society needs you to do. Like, fill Mm -hmm. your role, play your part, you know? Mm -hmm. And my mom's been so gracious and understanding that, like, I've kind of chosen a very unconventional one, you know? So, like, when I say that things were, like, planned out, spelled out for me, I don't mean that they picked out the, like, career of being a calligrapher that's the furthest thing from what i mean what i mean is that they chose a path of like bravery and like choosing things that aren't conventional Mm -hmm. and um and like i grew up from a young age watching my parents growing up in el paso like watching my parents like give of their earnings or of their things very freely to like other immigrants you know Mm -hmm. and being like we're all tied like i had moments with my dad where he would like we'd walk up to homeless people and he would invite them to our home and they'd stay with us. And like, he would ask them what their story was, you know, and, and he would give them clothes out of his drawer and like, let them shower in our bathroom. And it was very, like, I was, I was constantly taught this narrative of like, that's our brother, that's our sister. And I don't do it the justice that I, that I should be doing, you know, like, Mm. it's just like, I, I feel like I was given a very rare education by being the child of my parents who had such high hopes for this country and had such high hopes for, like, the community that I grew up in. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, that was spelled out for me and, like, living differently. Mm. But they very much, like, encouraged me to make my own choices. Yeah. And believed that that could be my only truth. Like, so my dad died when I was 18. And it was, like, very sudden. Um, He had a stroke and then was in a coma for three days and then died. Like I was there in the hospital room, like, and the day that he had his stroke and the very last conversation I had with him, neither of us knew it was going to be our last conversation. He was dropping me off at the airport for like a school trip. And I mean, this is a like my, the way my dad died and like the way I experienced that and how many like beautiful, like this, like beautiful thread that like kind of weaved that whole story together for me is, like, one of the wildest things I've... For me is, hands down, actually, the wildest thing I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. Because that, to me, is, like, kind of exhibited that, like, there's so much happening beyond my control. Okay. And that there's a story that was created, that, like, started being written way before I started to make my own conscious choices. Mm. You know? That... Get to play very beautifully into the choices that I make, you know. But we had that conversation where he was driving me to the airport, was gonna drop me off, and it's he hadn't been talking to me for two weeks because I had, without his consent, without my mom's consent, withdrawn my, um, like I don't know, my whatever it is, like decision to go to UT Austin and like decided to go to Baylor. And I didn't tell my parents. I just decided to do that. And I, like, withdrew from UT and, like, decided to go to Baylor. And then he found out later. And it was the first... I mean, for an Asian kid, that's, like, a very rebellious thing to do, right? Like, I was choosing to go to a private Christian school, but it was, like, the wildest, most rebellious thing I could have done because I did it without telling my parents. And my dad was just like, what is happening? Like, where is this coming from? You know? So, Mm -hmm. and he was really upset and didn't talk to me for, like, two weeks. And so... The day he broke his silence was this day. And it was kind of like he um, invited me or he he, like decided to drive me to the airport. On the way to the airport, he said like, Susie, I'm really sorry that I've like been trying to force my opinion on your decisions. I've raised you your whole life saying like, listen to God over man. Like, make your own choices and listen to God over man. Like, don't listen to people. Don't listen to what people tell you to do. Listen to the voice inside of you. You know, was, like, what he always told me to do. And his example was, like, my dad, you know, well, his dad, like, told him, like, no, he had to, to, like, live out this specific role that was set out for him. And my dad was, like, that's not right for me. Like, he listened to his inner voice and he moved to America, like, pursued this other story. And so he was, like... I've told you to do that your whole life. And I've realized, like, you just turned... I had just turned 18, like, four or five days before that. And he's like, you know, I'm realizing, like, this is the fruition of that. Mm-hmm. You're finally making your own choices. And I told you, like, what I wanted you to do. And then you, like, listened to your inner voice. And you literally, like, disobeyed me. But, like, that was just you doing what I've told you to do your entire life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he's like, I he said, like, these words... And in an Asian family, you don't get told, like, I'm proud of you or, like, those things very often, you know? Um, but I always knew my dad was proud of me. It was just something that wasn't necessarily vocalized all the time. But he said, like, Susie, I'm really proud of you. And I think I like who you're becoming, so just keep being true. Mm -hmm. And he dropped me off at the airport, and I flew to Phoenix for a school trip, and he had a stroke, and that was the last conversation we ever had. And so there's just this certain sense of like, I have to be true to that, you know, like, I have to be true to myself, I have to be true to that voice, and it may look different, it may sound different, but like, that is what's going to get me to like, fulfill my role in this world, and what's going to get me to live an authentic, like, authentic life, and, and like, actually play my part and say what I have to say in the short lifetime that I have, you know,
1: mm-hmm. so... Could we talk a little bit about your journey with religion?
0: Yeah, we can. It's a wild one. <laughs> yeah. Um, where do you want to start?
1: Well so I mean, in general, you were raised. I was you're, raised you're, you're, mm-hmm. Were your parents
0: both raised Christian? No.
1: Okay. So they were
0: both the first of their families to become Christians. Okay. Um,
1: that sort of happened like when they were together.
0: My or... my dad was a Christian. And then he kind of like got what do you call it um, lukewarm is the term that they use Oh
2: yeah yeah I've he got heard that He one. got
0: that lukewarm <laughs> he got that lukewarm fever and um, he like in that in somewhere in that stage met my mom my mom wasn't a believer at all mm-hmm. and fell in love with her they dated for a while they got married all the while my dad had this like super christian friend from college that was like his best friend and one weekend like in in korea even still like military service is mandatory for all korean males Mm. um so this friend was in military service he was doing like you do cheat and on the weekends you get like leave to like go you know like do whatever you want and this friend of my dad's would always, like, come to my dad's, come to my mom and dad's place and, like, spend it there. Mm-hmm. My mom was always, like, I always thought it was really weird, like, you know, like, most military guys on the weekends are, like, out partying and out, like, like, meeting women. Mm-hmm. Like, duh, hello, you know? And she was, like, I always thought it was really weird that he would, like, always come spend it at our place. And one weekend, your dad was out of town, and he still came, and I was, like, this is really weird. Like, what? This mm-hmm. is odd. Hmm. And... He invited my mom to go to church on Sunday and my mom went and she became a Christian and my dad came home from his business trip and my mom was like, I believe in Jesus now. And he was like, what? (gasps) Nice. (laughs) That's how that happened. So then my mom just got really like, really fiery and just started like, my mom's always been. For as long as I can remember, my mom's woken up at 5 a.m. every morning and prayed for, like, one or two hours before the start of every day. Wow. For as long as I can remember. So I think my my mom kind of, like, really surpassed my dad at some points. And just, like, she just became, like, prayer became her, like, her safe place. And I think she really needed that, immigrating to this country, because you can ask my mom, she is like, I was always a safe person. Like, I always made the safe choice, you know? Mm-hmm. And your dad was my, like, wild choice. He was my one wild choice. And then that turned into, like, wild choice after wild <laughs> choice because he made all these crazy choices, you know? Yeah. And so I think a big part of that was my mom, like, found this refuge in prayer. Just this, like, quiet place where things were, like, there was, like, a peace and calm in that for her. Mm-hmm. And whether she was in Korea or whether she was in America she could return to that place as being her safe place, you know? And it was the same yeah. for her in a foreign place as it was back in her home, you know? So, yeah, that's my parents' story. And I grew up, like, going to church every Sunday. The only Sunday I ever missed growing up was when I had chicken pox. I'm not even kidding. Like, from, like, the time I was born until I was 18 and out of out of my parents' house, like, the oh only gosh. time I missed church was when I had chicken pox. One week. Wow. Yeah.
1: Do you remember that week pretty vividly?
0: Yeah, because I was like, I mean, you know, you can't help like when you grow up in an environment like that, you're like, am I going to go to hell? Like, what's going to happen? Like, this is the only time I've ever missed church, you know? And part of that is too, I was just like a superstitious, weird kid. So I like assigned meaning to everything and I was like, well, if I go to church every Sunday but I don't go to church, this week, like, what's going to happen? Like, is everything going to fall apart, you know?
1: Yeah, were you, like, is was your Satan family, like, into, the, like, the rapture?
0: <laughs> totally. So, yeah,
1: like, if the rapture totally. is today. So,
0: my, my family was very... Like, married... you
1: were for sure going to be left yeah. behind.
0: Yeah, <laughs> my, my parents, my family was totally, like, I went to a church. It wasn't necessarily that my parents taught me about the rapture. It was, like, I had, like, that's the other thing, right? Is that your parents aren't the only people that teach you about religion. Like, there's these Sunday school teachers and these other characters who have slightly different opinions than your parents might, and... And you are affected by these things. And Mm. so I I had this one Sunday school teacher that, like, for some reason thought it was, actually, no, what happened, my brother's eight years older than me, so he was a part of the, like, the youth group while I was still, like, really young. I think I was, like, seven, I think, and he was, like, 15. That's what it was.
2: Mm.
0: And he's, yeah, and the youth group was watching uh, Left Behind That movie about the rapture. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wasn't supposed to be watching it because I'm seven, you know. But I, like, snuck in and literally watched through the crack of the door.
1: Oh, that's scarring.
0: It was so scarring because on top of the fact that I'm watching this secretly, I'm like, this is why I'm not supposed to be watching this, but I couldn't (laughs) stop watching it. And so then on top of that, like, my parents, my family, like, would always, you know, like, we would go to church really early and be there until, like, 3 p.m. And then we'd come home and everyone would take a nap. But like there were a couple times that I would wake up from the nap after everyone else, and they would have gone on a nature walk, and I like wake up and no one's home, and I'm like, what <laughs> <after> happened? <laughs> it happened. Yeah. And I'd just be like bawling, and my family would walk in the door and be like, what is happening? I'm like, oh, it didn't happen. Like everything's okay. But I totally grew up with that fear, you know, and and my parents always were like, you're fine. Like it's fine. Like we're all going to the same place if we're going somewhere, and you yeah. know. But like. Yeah, I grew up with like a in a Southern Baptist Korean church on Taj Mahal Street in El Paso, Texas. Yeah. Behind a, it's a
1: lot to Jehovah's Witness sentence. church. Yeah. It's a lot going on there. There was a
0: lot happening there. So like when I say El Paso <laughs> is diverse, like I'm not joking. Um, but yeah, I grew up with that with with that as a part of my childhood and like it wasn't until college that I kinda became my own, you know? Yeah. And like even now it's funny because I have friends who are like, oh, you're a Christian. And then I have other friends that are like, oh, like you're like the Christian, you know? (laughs) And, but for me, like so much of that has to do with going back, like growing up in a place like El Paso where people's stories are different and being like, I was, you know, at youth group and then would go clubbing in Juarez where I was like, okay, this is just a part of life. Is that like, like mm-hmm. there are very different people with very different lifestyles and very different beliefs, but like, I want to know all of them, Yeah. you know? And I think I had that like hunger in me to know everyone's story, like from a young age, because I had parents who were inquisitive and like wanted to, wanted to know more about the community that they lived in and engaged with the community that they lived in, mm-hmm. even though they were outsiders. Yeah. You know,
1: has your like, you know, journey and, changing, mm-hmm. I don't know, understanding, mm-hmm. what has that done to, like, your relationship with your mom?
0: Mm. Um, I think my mom, like, she's like any parent, right? Where they, like, want the best for you and they're afraid that you might, like, make a wrong turn and so they can be really overprotective sometimes and step into places where you're, like, I need to make this choice on my own. And I've had multiple conversations with my mom where I'm like, Mom, I still believe in God, and it looks different from how you believe in God, but, like, this isn't even about you trusting me as much as it is about you trusting God. And, like, knowing that if he's all supreme like you say he is and you believe he is, that, like, my journey's going to be okay, that I'm going to be okay, that all those prayers that you sewed into, like every morning at 5 a.m., you know, the hours you've poured into, like, praying into my life, that, like, if you really believe it, show me right now, Mm -hmm. you know, like, that kind of challenge of, like, I know you're being a good mom, but, like, I'm gonna, like, actually, like, challenge you to just, like, maybe practice what you preach and just, like, put your, put your faith on test right now, Mm -hmm. because, like, yeah... Part of my journey is freaking you out right now and it doesn't make any sense to you. But, like, if you really, really know that things are in his hands, then, like, you'll let me figure it out. And you'll let him, like, use whatever tools he has to, like, which is, you know, everything, like, to take me there. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get weird and it's definitely gotten weird. But I think... My mom knows that she would much rather me have an authentic relationship than have a forced, safe one. hmm Yeah. Yeah. But that's terrifying as a mom.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, just speaking to kind of like your your faith and what yeah. that looks like right now, uh-huh. Uh seems like this might be kind of tied into it, but one of the things you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. is... Um, looking for signs yeah and yeah I'd like to maybe kind of shift back into talking about uh this is um something that's maybe uh more like applicable for mm-hmm. just people yeah in their lives yeah totally There's some advice that you have to share
0: totally so like so much of my job like as a calligrapher is like trying to like put emphasis or beauty like inject beauty into words right Mm -hmm. into like words that already mean something to people and trying to like emote that through the visual appearance of these letters that create these words that have this that carry this meaning but i think so much of my own like i guess so much of my own story has to do with like seeing signs and feeling like some like there's meaning in things that other people might not understand and i think as as a kid that was a weird thing like as a child going back to my childhood like that was a weird thing because i tell my brother things my brother's way more of like a realist and way more of like a like a logical person than i am i'm like way more of like a romantic like my brother and my mom are the same person and me and my dad are the same person and like my mom, and my brother will be the first people to tell you that. But my dad was like a poet and was obsessed with words, which obviously got passed down to me. Um, and as a kid, like I would be sitting by the window and my brother would be like, what are you doing? You've been sitting there for 15 minutes. And I'd be like, I'm waiting for a sign. And he'd be like, well, what's the sign? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'll I'll know it when I see it. And he's like, well, what does the sign mean? And I'd be like, that I'm supposed to start my homework. And he's like, there's not a sign. You just need to start your homework. And it'd be like little weird things like that. I was a bizarre kid, but it's like totally, you know, it's one thing for it to be, for me to be like seven years old, like waiting, like just kind of looking for an excuse to delay my homework. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing for me to be like 23 years old, working through my first heartbreak and like reading a specific line in a novel and feeling like it's an indication to move to Scotland Mm. and then doing it and then like being away from all my family and all my friends and that having so much to do with who I am now you know like so like I don't know there's to me there's a beauty in looking for the signs and they're always going to be people like my brother that are a lot more pragmatic and and you know bring people like me who live in the clouds like back down to earth but at the same time like there are so many movies that wouldn't have been made and so many like children that wouldn't have been born and so many I don't know like books that wouldn't have been written had people not saw the beauty and the meaning in a sign mm-hmm. and not felt the weight or the importance or the urgency in in responding to those signs Yeah. you know and people all kinds of people live their life all kinds of different ways but I have chosen intentionally time and time again to like live my life looking for those signs because for me like it's fuel for the fire like mm-hmm. for me it's like what I need to keep going and to, like, find meaning in a world that I don't understand.
1: Yeah. It seems like something um, that's sort of a recurring thing for Mm -hmm. you is um, finding meaning, like, in words beyond what, like, the author sometimes even intended.
0: Totally. Totally. Like, oh, man. I mean, I didn't. I was supposed to, I went to grad school and I wanted to get my PhD after that and become a professor. I'm a calligrapher now. Like that did not pan out. And so much of why that is is because I read Franny and Zoe at the end of grad school by J.D. Salinger. And I was like, and I was like, see, this is it. Like just overeducation just like puffs people up and it doesn't like, it doesn't actually bring any change to the world. Like it's just like people living in an like living their existence in an ivory tower, writing papers people will never read.
1: Smoking in a bathtub.
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case, you know. That was just like me reading Franny and Zoe, looking for a reason to live my own truth. Okay. You know? Yeah. So I think that's what happens is like we see we look we see the signs we're looking for, right? Like yeah. we don't see the signs that we're not looking for. Like I I don't think I've seen I've actually like noticed a speed limit sign yeah. in like 10 years you know like did
1: you ever like see a sign telling you it was time to do your homework yeah oh you did yeah i saw the bird oh yeah so so secretly like you did want to do your homework i knew i needed to (laughs) i knew i had
0: to i knew at some point the sign had to come and i had to just decide that that was the sign Mm
1: -hmm. so
0: that's so that's the other part of it too you know is like
1: deciding when something is the sign
0: yeah i think subconsciously we all know what we're supposed to do we just need like the courage to do it
2: Hmm.
0: and so that bird flying by at just the right moment or that like song lyric that just came on the second you turned on the radio you know like that becomes a sign because it becomes it becomes the cue to courage of like i've been waiting to do this and i've needed to do this but i need like I just need someone, something to push me. Yeah. Oh
1: man, I feel like I totally agree. I feel like the whole concept of, um, I feel like it's not entirely uncommon to get this sense of, like, having an epiphany.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Like, you know, just suddenly realizing something. Yeah. Like, I've never thought about it like totally. this before. Yeah. But I feel like nine times out of ten when that happens, like, it is, le- like, it's legitimately something you've thought before. Totally. Like, you've, you I didn't mean, you... invent a new thought out of nowhere. Totally.
0: Go back to your journals you've written about it, you wrote about it three years ago, like, verbatim, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like,
1: guess what? Like, you're so excited about this new thought because all it does is confirm what you already believe yes, in some way exactly
0: and totally. if
1: like it didn't do that then it wouldn't be exciting to you it would be depressing totally.
0: totally yeah there's a narrative that like rings true to us and we wait for it to like ring mm-hmm.
1: yeah hey Susie! thanks so much for coming on the Rainier club podcast thanks for
0: having me <laughs>